Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by LionRock.life. So I had a, a San Diego reader, which is like a free crossword puzzle. Smoking meth, shooting heroin, shooting meth. I had a compact with a light on it so I could like pick my face in the dark because I was one of those like meth picker people. And I remember thinking like, I am 34, living in a doghouse, hoping I don't get murdered by a chainsaw. This is my life. Like this happened. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Lassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Janine Coulter. Janine's story is a powerful and inspiring journey of transformation and redemption. For 15 years, Janine battled with addiction, leading to multiple arrests, homelessness, finally spending her last days of shooting meth and heroin in a literal doghouse before getting sober in January of 2015. Less than three weeks after getting sober, she started teaching at a fitness studio that would transform her life and eventually bought that same studio at four years sober. Her business exploded during Janine's ownership and she recently sold it for double what she paid for it sparking her interest in entrepreneurship and creating a community. Janine is on a mission to help addicts transform their deepest pain and shame into meaning, purpose, and gratitude. Janine's message is clear. Addicts in active addiction should never feel left behind. Today, Janine is a successful entrepreneur and co-host of the recovery podcast, Chasing Heroin. Friends, So much fun doing this episode. Janine is awesome. And I related a lot to her story, as you'll hear. She has some great lines that I believe will stick with all of us. Janine grew up with a relatively happy life, happy family, had all the opportunities and never saw herself ending up where she did. And so I think it's important to remember that addiction comes to find people who don't always have the crazy trauma stories. It can happen to anyone at any time. And Janine is a perfect example of that. I hope you get a good laugh and lots of wisdom and inspiration from this episode. Without further ado, I give you Janine Coulter. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Janine, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I feel like our we have a lot of uh, fun, relatable things in our story. So, but the first thing I want to talk about is that you lived in a doghouse. So tell sure. me about you living in a doghouse for real. It was actually the last time that I got clean. So I had tried to get clean for years and years and years and years and years, right? Lived for, you know, used for 15 years and had been trying off and on, off and on, off and on. So my thing was I would live in your sober living. Mm-hmm. I would live in yeah. a sober living and I would be using and I could fake a P test easily. Why did you like that? Using while I was still there. Yeah. Like I'd never understood why people want to get loaded while going to meetings or living with like that pressure. Yeah. So I think that's a good question. So, cause I went to meetings a lot too, while I was using, I think, well, so for one thing I was homeless unless right, I lived right, in a, right. okay. um, unless I was in a sober living, I was homeless. 
So it was a place for me to live, right? I'd been homeless for a long time. And so typically the sober living was where I had landed because somebody like allowed me to go there or I'd gotten kicked out of a program. So I was homeless staying there. But really, honestly, and this is why it's a good question. I really wanted to be clean. Like I wanted to be sober and couldn't, you know, like my sponsor always says the last stage of using, or I'm sure other people say this is using against your will. And I was using against my will in the end a lot. I didn't want to be doing it anymore. But then there's also like the selfish side of an addict that is, well, I want to still do what I want to do and be here. I had been in that homeless jail cycle for like five years. So the idea of living in like a house was nowhere near something I could do. That wasn't, I was not going to be like living in an apartment using this was, I'd been in this, in this stages for five years. Like I didn't have an ID. I hadn't worked. I didn't have a car. So state run funded sober livings is where I would land. And then I was just using also often I was strung out to on heroin, meaning right. If I didn't use, I would get sick. I was always like trying to detox. I was always like trying to get a hold of Suboxone. And my plan was always to kick. And then it would just like get away from me somehow. In fact, I say often Suboxone would just end up being a charge. It would be a possession charge because I would end up getting arrested with my Suboxone. And so I've got like all these Suboxone charges and I'd be telling the cops like, no, that's, I was trying to kick the, forget it. So I was in this sober living and I had been using and passing their P test. And I have like this like way to pass a P test that is foolproof. They've actually like changed policies at several of the sober livings and, and rehabs I was in to beat the way that I was beating the test. Yes, girl. Well, Innovative. Yeah. Right. That's what my mom said. When I told my mom what I was doing and I used to share it and then I realized, okay, I don't need to be giving addicts any idea. So I'm not going to share my method anymore. Also, you can probably figure it out with a woman. It's not that hard. So my mom was like, if only you would use your innovative powers for good and not exactly. evil. Exactly. Love this. Okay. So you so were living innovative. Sober living. Yes. Yeah, so I'm innovative, right? Using daily, clearly strung out, haven't paid that month's rent yet. And they had just let me live there and I was supposed to be getting a job and, and pay rent. And that wasn't happening, obviously. And it was New Year's Eve of 2000. 14. So about to go into 2015. I was at like a, a Chili's, I think, with a friend of mine. So I had this friend that I had used with. He was actually my first connection, my first drug dealer. He'd gotten raided and gone to prison and done like two years, got out. And he was clean when he got out and was like hanging out with me and kind of trying to help me. So he'd taken me out to dinner on New Year's Eve. And while I was there, the owner of the sober living called me and she was like, so Janine, you left some heroin here on the bathroom sink you can't come back tonight. I was standing in the in the bar of this Chili's or whatever. And I was like, you don't know that's mine. That's circumstantial evidence, man. Eight other women live there. We're all in recovery, man. You don't know that's mine. And meanwhile, I'm thinking like, did I leave heroin on the yeah, seat? Yeah. Like, that's what I was I thinking too. That. Yeah. yeah. Like, I yeah. need that. Did I do that? And she, but like, I'm sure I did. I also would get sloppy sometimes. Like I would leave a cellophane somewhere. And so it's, it's reasonable that I had done it. She said, well, that's true but we're pretty sure it's yours. Everyone else is here. Oh, and I said, I passed a drug test for you this morning. You don't know that's mine, which I had. And she said, well, that's true. You did pass a drug test this morning and I don't know how you're doing that, but all the other girls are here and uh, they're all pretty sure it's yours and I'm pretty sure it's yours. So I tell you what, if you can bring me a blood test that says that you're clean, I'll support you. And no one had ever asked me for a blood test before. And to her in the moment, I went, Fine, I'll do it tomorrow. And we get off the phone and I didn't even have a, uh, they used to give you in California or maybe everywhere, they would give you a flip phone when you got out of jail. So I had my flip phone, I'd get off the phone. My friend ended up getting me a hotel room that night and he was sitting with me in the motel room 
And I was like, hey, give me your phone because he had an iPhone. I was like, give me your phone. I need to look up the logo for Tri-City Hospital, which is a hospital here. I said, I need to look up the logo and I need to see what this blood test looks like. And, you know, I need to, I'm going to forge this document. Do they still have Kinko's? I need, because I've actually forged a medical document before in LA a long time ago. I could do this. I just need to see what it looks like, blah, 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 blah. And he just sat there like staring at me. And he kind of backed me up, like no matter what. And he wasn't. He was just sitting there like staring at me. And I remember I went, okay, don't look at me like that. Like, what do you want me to do? I can't kick outside. I had one Suboxone that had had a bite taken out of it in a cigarette cellophane from a friend. I had a half of a, like a half a chewed up Suboxone. And I said, I have a Suboxone. Like I was going to get clean, but I can't kick outside. I can't be dope sick on the streets. Like I don't want to forge a blood test. She's making me, she's making me forge a document. I don't want to forge a document. What am I supposed to do? And he said, well, you could get clean. And I remember I like sat down on the bed across from him. And obviously like people had said stuff like that to me before. You know, it'd been 15 years of this bullshit from me. But for some reason in that moment, it just like hit me. And I literally like sank onto the bed across from him. And I thought like, my God, like I am working so hard to have the worst life possible, you know? (laughs) With all That's my mach- so accurate, right? With all my machinations and bullshit to pass mm-hmm. these tests, so I can yep. keep ruining my life. And I remember thinking, I mean, I guess I could do that, but I wasn't ready that night because I still had some dope with me. So I spent the night there, and then the next day, I had no, I, you know, I didn't know where to go. So I called a connect of mine, and and I was like, Yeah, man, I don't know where I'm gonna go. I got kicked out of my, I got kicked out of my sober living. I don't know where I'm gonna go. And he said, Well, I have a place you can stay. And I said, Where? And he said, You can stay in the doghouse in my backyard. And I was like, Really? Are you sure? And he was like, sure. And I was like, that is awesome. Thank you. Good. I'll be right there. And my buddy, of course, did not want to take me to the doghouse, but he did. And so he pulled up into this little like alley. You know, he let me in through the fence. And it was actually like, it was a little bit bigger than a doghouse. It was like a little shed, like a corrugated iron shed. And there was like a futon on the ground and his dog would go in and out of there. So he let the dog inside and let me stay in the shed. And I stayed there for three nights. There was a padlock on the outside and he padlocked me in at night. And not so that I would escape though. It was, he was a friend of mine. (laughs) You know how it is in the drug world. Like he was like my good buddy looking out for me. His wife lived in the main house with him and he had let someone live there once before. And this was like a known story in our little area. She had tried to like basically assault her with a running chainsaw and had chased her down the street of this neighborhood. So the first or second night I was there, that was one of the realizations that I was sitting there thinking like, so I had a, a San Diego reader, which is like a free crossword puzzle, smoking meth, shooting heroin, shooting meth. I had a compact with a light on it so I could like pick my face in the dark because I was one of those like meth picker people. And I remember thinking like, I am 34 living in a doghouse, hoping I don't get murdered by a chainsaw. This is my life. Like this happened. And the second night he actually let somebody in with me, which was really scary. He opened the door and let somebody in at like two in the morning, this guy. And he was like kind of trying to sit with me on the little bed, but there was a, t- it was a little chair too. And he came in and he was like, can I sit with you? And I said, no. And I just like turned away and kept doing my crossword puzzle. And he was like trying to sit on the thing and I was just scooting over. And then he finally like sat on the other side. And eventually I looked up and he was on his phone, like playing games on his phone. And after, I don't know how long, maybe like an hour and a half, my buddy came and let him out. And I just heard them talking. And later it occurred to me that like, because soliciting wasn't one of the things that I did when I was using. I would like steal things from Walmart, Home Depot and pretend I ran out of gas. I had all these like stupid dope fiend hustles, but soliciting wasn't one of them, right? Prostituting wasn't one of them. And I realized later, like like a month or so later, I was like, oh, I think I was supposed to sleep with that guy in exchange for being in the doghouse. Maybe, maybe another woman would have known that, but I didn't know. So I was just kind of ignoring him. The second to last night that I was there, the, or the last night that I was there, 
And there was all these like miracles that started happening in my recovery, right? And and this is one of them. So I had this really good friend who was a Marine and he'd been my roommate before. Like he would go to Afghanistan and come back and we would live together sometimes. The further I fell into heroin use, you know, we weren't living together anymore when he came back, but he would always like check on me. And usually I'd be in rehab and he called me and said, hey, I'm back. I'm in 29 Palms, which is a base like two hours away from where I am in San Diego. Uh, what are you doing? And I said, I am living in a doghouse in Oceanside. And I think I'm going to die. And I think I'm going to die. And he went, okay, if I come get you, will you come with me? And I had robbed him before. Like there was a whole other time years before this where he'd gone to pick me up and I said I was going with him and I saw cash in his wallet. And I was like, hey, before I go, I just need to buy some Suboxone. Can you drive me to get some Suboxone? And he was like, sure. How much is it? And I said, 20 bucks. And he opened and I saw more 20s. And I was like, or 60, 60 actually. And he was like, okay. And gave me the money and I just ran and never went back. And a buddy of mine told me later, he saw him just like in his truck, like driving up and down the streets looking for me. And I had like run away. So I'd stolen a PlayStation from him. And this was now years later. And he said, if I come get you, will you come with me? And I said, yes, I'll go with you. And there was a Burger King nearby, like right near that doghouse. And the next morning, uh, it was a Sunday and I walked to the Burger King to meet him. And I called my mom who lives here. She was on her way to church and she came and stopped by to see me at the Burger King. And I wanted five bucks for like a pack of cigarettes. And she wouldn't even give me five bucks, which is something that I always share because I think it's, she got to a point with me where that's where she was, right? And and she ended up finding like a really good balance, I think, between like making me know that I was like loved and emotionally supported without giving me anything. And again, same thing though, that attitude, I was like, you won't even give me five bucks. So he's coming all the way here from 29 Palms to, to save my life. And he's going to have to buy me cigarettes. Thanks a lot, mom. Like everybody's having to take care of me, you know? And she brought me a cliff bar and some vitamin C tablets <laughs> and said, I'm sorry, honey. You know, good luck, honey. I, I, I hope this works for you. And he came and picked me up from the parking lot in this Burger King because they made me leave. So I was clearly a homeless person. So I was waiting for him outside and he picked me up and I went to his house and I kicked heroin for the last time. I brought a little bit of dope with me and I had that chewed up Suboxone. So it lasted for like two days. And then, you know, for your audience listening, that's opiate addicts or heroin addicts, you have to wait some period of time before you take your Suboxone. So I did, ate my half chewed up Suboxone, drank for another 10 days because I was really sick from kicking, um, which everybody always thinks is really weird that I was able to drink while I was kicking. But for whatever reason, basically I would just do it until I passed out. And then January 15th, 2015, I put the bottle down and that's been that. So I just had eight years and that's the doghouse story. So the doghouse was my last use. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I'm assuming that when you were a little girl and all the little girls were talking in school about like what they wanted to be when right. they grew up, you were like, <laughs> I want to be a heroin addict and a drug 100%. addict, right? Of course, that, of course. Is that how that happens? Yeah. Well, I think we all do, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, I really want to tear my life and everyone in it to the ground. Right. You know what? Actually, it's funny that you say that because so no, that's certainly not what I wanted, right? Like actually I was, I did really well academically. I got like great SAT scores. I did really well in school. This amazing family. Parents are still married or they were still married. They divorced later, but they were married when I was growing up. My dad's a pilot. My mom's a social worker. She was the youth minister at my church, like this amazing family. But I did want to be all of these like grandiose things, right? Like I wanted to be the first, I wanted to be the first woman president. I wanted to be an actress. Wanted to be a lawyer, all these things. But the lawyer thing was pretty in reach, right? Because I debated and I was going to go to law school. So it's funny that you say that because one of like the bigger realizations that I ever that I ever had was at about 90 days. I was turning 35 and I was at my sober living and a different sober living. <laughs> I couldn't go back to that one, obviously. And there was like one sober living left that would let me live there. So I was turning 35 and I had 90 days and I was on the couch in this sober living and had like nothing. And I remember thinking, and you know how it is, like it was my birthday and I was really bummed out. 
and everybody around me was like, yeah, but you're clean, man. You know what I mean? You're clean. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's not really doing it for me this time though, because I'm 35. And like, if you could go back and find Janine in high school, like walking down the hallway with my two friends, Aaron and Elizabeth, who have both gone on to become like wildly successful homeowners, married, whatever. One of them is actually a lawyer. If like the ghost of Christmas future had floated into that hallway and been like, Janine, stop right there. Do you want to see where you're going to be at 35 years old? I would have been like, totally. I'm sure I'm going to be married and live in a mansion and be rich and be famous. I don't know for what, but yeah, show me. And if the ghost of Christmas future had been like, yeah, well, actually none of that shit's going to happen. But what you will have going for you that day is you will be 90 days off of heroin, which for you will be a massive achievement at that point in your life. I would have been horrified, you know, and been like, like you're on the wrong side of the high school. This is the AP wing. You should be on the other side of the high school, you know, like, no, certainly it's not what I wanted. It like strangely makes me emotional because I always say like I'm I'm same way. Like I was honor student and I had great grades and very ambitious and all the things and like went to great schools. My parents are married, all the things. It makes me emotional just thinking about that because I, I know what that feels like where like you're sitting there going, everyone I grew up with is in a totally different place. And, you know, I think like you had this too, where we are the best at being the worst. Yeah, right. There's no pain like going on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> on someone else's phone and seeing your, your friends someone are getting married. Phone. You know what I yeah. mean? Getting yeah. married and buying houses. And I'm a homeless junkie. And I was like, I was as smart as any one of them, you know? But like you just said, there's an AA speaker named Earl Hightower. And he says, we have the opportunity to marvel at the ordinary because all of those ordinary things that you just said about, we have such an immense like gratitude for. And that's why for me, I'm so grateful actually that I was a heroin addict in particular, in particular, because I was like a Coke addict and an alcoholic for many, many years before I started doing heroin. Heroin, heroin forced me to pick a side. And in that moment, I was what after I had that thought about my birthday, I was doing this like gratitude meditation outside at my shitty, I thought sober living. And as soon as I was done with the meditation, I remember like opening my eyes and there was a really nice view there from my sober living. And I was like overwhelmed with this feeling of not being dope sick, not being dope sick. And I, and, and, and this is like a pain that leads to a gratitude specifically for heroin addicts and opiate addicts. Like we always at least have, no matter what is going on, not being dope sick, not needing $20 just to breathe is such a gift every day. And like, I was overwhelmed with not being dope sick. I didn't have to go get 20 bucks and then I realized this view was like really beautiful. And I thought, well, that view didn't just get there because I'd lived in that sober living twice before and got kicked out both times for selling dope on the property. And I realized that view didn't just get there. I just hadn't been able to see it before. And I realized like, did my heroin addiction like make me more grateful? Because that's always been there. I just couldn't see it. But right now, because I feel so good about not being dope sick, like I'm able to see this and everything from me really shifted after that. But it's that it's we get to marvel at the ordinary. I also used to think that and this is was such like a hard lesson for me to learn. Like one of the things I say in my classes that I teach because I'm in fitness, I'll say, if you want a hard life, do the easy things. You want an easy life, do the hard things. Like I look at someone like my father who's done everything right and like raised a family and bought a house and like went to grad school and all. That's hard to do. You know, what I was doing was easy and the easy things create such a harder life, you know, but you're right. Like, and and I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes I still feel like it's fading a bit now around the, you know, I've got eight years now, but like, I still can remember like walking around with my bag, you know, walking from bus stop to bus stop. Like those memories are still so close. 
And they sometimes still feel more me than like having a car and driving places. You know what I mean? Like it's so yeah. close. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. So I do, ha- I have that in, in different ways where I feel like, you know, I think it's some of it is, um, is imposter syndrome, right? Where I am out with, like, I I went to grad school and I was with all these people who, you know, theoretically I'm as smart as, but they have lived a totally different life. And I feel like, I feel like they don't know me, even though they know who I am today and all that there's this piece of me that, that always wants to jump out and fuck everything up. Some of it's addiction, but some of it's just like a wild child that's there, you know, like some of it, and it comes out in different ways. And as I've gotten older, it is an interesting feeling to still have that, have the wild child that's, you know, not quite as deviant, but also with the deviance mixed piece, the addiction piece, (laughs) and like not outwardly have any of that. It's weird. It feels weird. Like I sometimes feel like I need something to make it authentic to how I feel on the inside. Has that manifested for you in any like, you know, like behaviorally in sobriety? Has that manifested for you, especially in the early days? Yeah, like in the younger, in the early days, um, I did a lot of weird, you know, crazy things. I made sure that my ordinary life included a lot of really adrenaline producing, jumping out of planes, bungee jumping. um, Interesting, okay. You know, going to, like I, I had a friend who was super into the SM world and I would go to these, you know, and like check it out and like, like dungeons and stuff. Yeah. Like sex clubs. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. I've never been to um, one of those. Whoa. Yeah. It, it turns out, it turns out that Ashley, I know it's, <laughs> it's really not my thing, but like, yeah. I definitely was there like dressing the part and whatever. So doing all that stuff, doing this like kind of crazy things that I've done in my life, they're important. I have a lot less of that now that I have little kids. It is an interesting piece of me that I don't express that much that I, I did in my early sobriety that I don't anymore. I don't really know how to express that in a way that makes a lot of sense at this stage. I mean, I think I'm still looking for it. What about you? So I, I was just thinking while you were saying that, I didn't really have that like looking for the the risky stuff. Did I? You know what I did? This was something I would do that commonly, but I did this before I was really bad with using as well because I, I personally believe that I had these like addict tendencies in me from the jump, like that kind of thing. This is so... I don't talk about this often. I would like go after married men before I was using and like my first time in, in rehab when I like this, not this last round, but the one prior to. It. I was like dating this married dude and he was a gangster and his yeah. wife was a gangster and she oh would have killed me. Yeah, that yeah, seems like a she terrible idea. Me. It's yeah. a terrible idea. And so like that kind of stuff, the, the the physical riskiness. In fact, my mom actually suggested that at one point in this in my journey. She was like, maybe I'm gonna tell her that you said that. She was like, maybe you should like jump out of airplanes. It's like you're looking for adrenaline. She actually suggested that at one point when I was like, you know, looking for ways to get clean. You know what I think I do though? And this is huge. I drink really extreme pre-workout and it's got like a ton of caffeine in it. Yeah, yeah. And I do incredibly difficult workouts. And I think that's what it is for me, which I guess is in a way that's like a a healthy way that it kind of manifests. No, it is. You know, I think that's what I do. It's the thing you see. It's 
it's the thing we have that's like the extreme part. Like what we, we see something we like and we just hunt it into the ground, down into the burrow and into yeah. the center of the earth. You know what though? I think that that's our secret weapon. It is. This is why I think that being an addict is such a superpower. You know, there's a debate now, I don't know how you feel about this, but there's a debate now about like the word addict and some people don't want to identify that way in 12 step. And I get that. But to me, I think the reason I have no problem with that is because to me, addict is such a positive word. And it probably wasn't before, but it is now. I'm like, I'm a dope fiend. I'm so proud of it. It's the best thing about me. Being left-handed, like my dad and being a drug addict are like my favorite things about me. You know what I mean? To me, it's such a good thing. I mean, because like I was able to leverage that into like, I'm addicted to work, right? I'm addicted to teaching. I'm addicted to now the podcast that I do, you know, like, and I funneled all of that into, so I had taught spin prior to getting strung out on heroin. And then throughout my heroin use, like I would get clean for a little bit and get a job teaching spin. And then of course I'd get strung out and lose it. So I was like still doing that all the time. And when I came back from that sober living, I got a job. I started teaching spin again at 19 days at this studio. And I was like taking the bus there. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, for people who don't know, for anyone who isn't has not experienced opiate withdrawal, especially like a long Bro. term, teaching yeah. spin at 19 days is truly asinine. You're the first person that's interviewed me that has like understood that. I mean, maybe they have, they just didn't catch it because I like, I'm used to saying it. It was My actually- My butthole was still on fire. <laughs> like, know, girl, like... I'm not sitting on a, on a spin bike. It was half spin, half bar. And and now to be fair, so this particular Literally run... Literally nothing fair about that. Right. Well, okay. This particular run had been three months. And then prior to that, I'd had some clean time. So like after using daily grams of meth and heroin, IV use for like a year, I went to a detox. I was dog sick still at 19 days. In fact, at 12 days, I escaped and came back because I was still super, super sick. So like after that particular one, I don't think I could have done this. This time I'd had like six months used for a week, three months used for three months. And now we're here, right? So like you know, I was definitely strung out. I was sick at my friend's house. I was very sick and I threw up. So I auditioned for this place. The one good thing I had done, and this is just so crazy how this like turned around fate wise in my life. Right before I went to the doghouse, I jumped on Craigslist at my sober living because I was like trying to get a job, even though I was strung out. And I saw somebody looking for a spin and bar teacher in Encinitas, which was like, you know, by bus 30 minutes away. I emailed this person and said, hey, yeah. And because I've got a great resume. I taught at the Beverly Hills Country Club. I taught at all these fancy places, you know, and she uh, scheduled me for an audition, which I, of course, couldn't make because I was strung out. But I actually texted her that day and said I couldn't make it, which I normally wouldn't do. So I forget all about this. Go to the doghouse a week later. Get back from the doghouse. I'm at this sober living. And I was like, man, I need a job. Oh, I wonder if that chick will audition me again. She seemed cool. So I email her back and I'm like, hey, her name is Jana. And I said, Jana, I'm back. I had made something up. And I said, can I audition for you again? And she was like, sure, yeah, come down. So I auditioned and they wanted me to start a class that was half spin, half bar, which I thought was like ridiculous. I didn't think that that was a good combination at all, but I agreed, of course. And so when I taught the spin and then the bar was in a second room, I actually went through up my first day. And she is now that same studio. At four years, I bought that studio from her and owned it. Owned it for three years sold it for double. And we doubled the valuation of the studio because I think we're drug addicts, like me and my husband both. And he's a brilliant carpenter. So we were able to move outside, sold it. And now she and I actually work together again at another studio 
And like, she still has that original email I sent her. And she now knows she was in my wedding and talk about, she went to like RISD. She's from this like amazing family. And like, she was one of the first people I really started to like open up to about my, my background. And she was so like not judgmental about it. And now we work together again. She owns a studio. I'm the general manager. I've actually, I don't think I've ever shared that before. I did not think at all when I was out at my friend's house, when I was homeless, I was so fucking lost. I had no friends. My mom wouldn't even give me anything other than vitamin C. You know what I mean? Like nobody, everybody was done with my bullshit. You know, everybody was done with my bullshit. Everybody in North County, San Diego knew me. I was always lying and using your sober livings. Everybody hated me. It was a gross dope thing too. Like I'd use your needle if you yeah. weren't oh, looking. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm picking my face, bleeding on your stuff. Like people are, people would say to my, my boyfriend that I had for a little while, they'd be like, get her out of here. Like within addicts, there's a hierarchy and uh, inside the meth addicts, like the people that pick and can't hit, like I couldn't find a vein. Even within addiction of the hierarchy, I was like the lowest of the low. And when I was out there, if I could have known that eight years later, I'd be sitting here with a Mac and a microphone and telling you that the girl that I had just emailed ended up being in my wedding and I bought a business from her. And I can't tell me that, but I can tell someone listening that, you know, like, it blows my mind that it worked. That's the thing is that, you know, I was talking to a woman who said, you know, we get well at the crossroad of out of ideas and out of options. And it, our ideas are fucking amazing. Like the ones we have while we're using are, I mean, absolutely. I was like you, like would use other people's needles. So, but I didn't want to get a disease, right? So, so what did I do? I wrote my name first and last on my syringes in Sharpie so that when I came into contact with law enforcement and was telling them, no, sir, I do not know whose those are. And all of them were labeled like a middle school sweatshirt. That, that you know, is amazing. Like I, my idea was like, I, it didn't occur to me that number one, no addict is going to not use my syringes just because I wrote my name on them. Like, like it's just, we don't care. And you're right. Because I feel like sometimes people, that needle sharing thing, sometimes people don't understand. You don't care. And in fact, I actually, there was a guy that I was using with an older dude and I wanted to use his needle because mine broke. And he was like, I have hep C, dude. And I lied. And actually, I don't know if I lied or not. I might've had it by then. I said, I do too. And he was like, really? Because you've never said that. And I was like, well, we've never talked about hep C. To my knowledge, I didn't have it. I ended up getting it probably that day. Now, thank God for us. Now there's Maverick and the, I, I was cured of it at the, about the three-year mark. Oh, but they're I didn't curing know. it now. Oh yeah, you can cure Hep C. Yes. Interferon? Uh, no, Interferon they don't do anymore because Interferon only had like a 75% chance of working and it was like oh. chemo. It was really intense. Yeah. No, yeah. there are now eight weeks or 12-week treatments. It's like a pill in the morning, a pill at night, a pill in the evenings, and it cures Hep C now. Wow, that's yes. amazing. I didn't know. Yeah, that. so for anyone listening, that was a that was a bad day for me. Despite those those choices, I was at this program and I had refused to get tested for HIV because I just had this feeling that I had it. I just did. I was like, dude, I have it. I know I have. I just knew. And Hep C, I didn't think about. I wasn't that worried about. And I got tested for both. 
called my mom outside the little office. And I was like, Hey, if I have HIV, I'm just leaving right now. Just so you know, I'm not going to like live. And she was like, okay, well, why don't you wait until they talk to you? And I was like, fine, but I'm just telling you right now, I'm a leaf. And she was like, okay, went back in the room and I did not have HIV. And I had this gut feeling I had it. In fact, again, at like 18 months, it plagued me. And I thought maybe they had just missed it. And I got tested again and didn't have it. And I've spoken with other people that felt that way too. So for anyone that's listening, yeah, yep. that if you have just this weird tested. feeling, you have yeah. it, yeah. Because I was going to like prison programs and stuff, everyone had hep C and it was really treated like it wasn't a big deal. And so I never really cared. But then when they told me I had it, it just, and this was before there was a known cure. This was in 2014. They were doing like research on it. And I knew I had probably voluntarily just done it. That that was a tough day. Um, but yeah, they, they cure it now. There are several different pills that will cure it now. And you can get it like I did it with my free health insurance. I did it for free. What was it for you? Like, because I get, I get a lot of parents who listen to this who have either teenagers or, or like adult children and what they can't wrap their mind. They have kids like us and they don't understand what happened. They don't understand how we went from caring about grades to using needles. Like how did that, what, why do you think that trajectory happened for you? So I've obviously thought about this a lot. The best definition of rock bottom I ever heard is when your circumstances degrade faster than you can lower your standards. Oh my God, I love that. Right? Because oh, I love that. When they degrade just a little, because I was sharing with my boyfriend first. I'm just sharing with, with him. Right, right. Right. I started heroin. I started smoking, right? Right, well, like, right, right. Not a, yeah. You know? yeah. And I so mean, it's opium, like these, it's, you know, natural and totally. Yeah. I mean, there's like a million, you know, I'm not doing it every day, whatever. Like there's obviously, I also heard somebody else say this recently too, that there's a very big difference between a physical bottom and an emotional bottom. The physical bottom for me, there really wasn't one. The doghouse wasn't even the worst thing that I wasn't even the worst position I'd ever 100%. been in, to be honest. 100%. But spiritually, there must've just been something different finally about that time. So for me, I will say, so I kind of like two theories on this. So I, I believe that I always had these qualities of addiction in me because I can remember like the things that we learned, like the rules don't apply to me. I was always kind of trying to take the easy way out and I was young and I got good grades. And so like, you couldn't see it, but like, I remember when I was a kid, not, not cheating on tests or anything, but like taking the easy way out, thinking things didn't really apply to me. Rules didn't apply to me. You know, like even when I was in high school, I would be super late every day for school really, really late. And I was so obnoxious. I would go to Chick-fil-A every morning anyways and get like a giant Coke and a buttered biscuit super late and then drive up onto... There was like this big sidewalk in front of my high school. Drive up onto the curb in the high school, onto the sidewalk, run inside because my homeroom was right there. Run inside like at the bell, sit there for 10 minutes, get in my car, leave, go to Dunkin' Donuts come back, park in the handicap spot to run to gym. After gym, I would finally actually park my car. You're not supposed to do any of that. That's really obnoxious. And I wasn't using them, right? And none of my friends would have done that. And that's like kind of how I acted. And, and to me, those are all like added qualities. I mean, they're also qualities of being a teenager, but that's a little more extreme. None of my friends were doing that stuff. So I think I kind of had, I had those tendencies anyways. And then I will say that, so I, I think that I would have ended up dependent maybe on alcohol instead later in life. Like if I'd gone the law school route, you know, maybe not heroin if I'd done that whole thing. But I will say with me, when I was a senior in high school, my parents did split up and it was really, really surprising. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. My brother wasn't expecting it. And my whole world did really, really crumble. And I got really, very, very, very sad. And looking back, I think I had like a year long nervous breakdown when I was like 17 and 18. 
I had already gotten into this really good college early admission. I was on my way. There was no going back on that. I mean, there probably would have been. My parents are really supportive, understanding people. If I had said, hey, you know, I'm gonna take a year and go to community college, I probably could have. It wasn't even on my radar to maybe to do something like that. So I went and I just couldn't even go to school. Like I, I it was just the saddest I've ever, to this day, including being homeless on heroin, that year was the saddest I've ever been in my life. You know, my dad and I are super close and I was just so sad. And I would drink a beer here and there prior to that. I did smoke cigarettes because I thought that looked cool. I did smoke, but I didn't really like smoking weed or drinking. I didn't really like being out of control in any real way. And then after that happened, I very consciously kind of took a wrecking ball to my life and thought, I just remember having this overwhelming feeling of feeling like tricked. The life you sold me, you're not even doing. Like, what am I doing? I've been doing the hard stuff for the easy life. And look at you two idiots, you know, I'm not doing any of this anymore. And I just took like a wrecking ball to my life. And I started with my academics and quit going to school when I was up there. I went to DC, a college in Washington, DC, left DC, went to University of Georgia, you know, same thing. And I did Coke for the first time in Athens, Georgia, which is where UGA is. When I did cocaine for the first time, you know, people in meetings, in 12-step meetings, will talk about drinking alcohol for the first time. And they're like, the first time I drank, I knew. I did not feel that way with alcohol. I didn't like being buzzed. But the first time I did Coke, I remember thinking like... Oh, oh, I can do this. If this is how you all feel, I could do life like this. I can't do it that other way, but I could do this. I think it just took me out of this depression I'd been feeling about my family, you know, and then I chased that, but it, it still didn't derail my life. It, it was, a, it was years before it derailed my life. But, I, but I also want to make it really, really clear that like it was unrelated to my parents' choices, what I was doing, because lots of people's parents get divorced and they don't end up shooting heroin. My brother didn't. I have a brother. He didn't end up shooting heroin. He didn't do great. He drank too much too, but he did end up shooting heroin. You know what I mean? He's got a great job. Combine that with, I, I moved to LA to try to be an actress because I didn't want to go to college. And so I thought that being a famous actress would be easier than going to a 9am econ class. So I moved to LA, was very disappointed for a long time that I didn't finish college. And I, I, I had a guest on my show say once that someone chasing stimulants, the feeling behind that is that they can't believe where their life is at. There's this feeling of this can't be my life. And that's who goes after stimulants. He's got this whole theory on... Like who goes for what? Yes. Uh-huh. And what's going on there. If that's true, which in my case, it would have been, I was in LA and I wasn't an actress yet, of course, <laughs> because I wasn't really... You know what I mean? Like, again, I didn't want to play by the rules. It's very hard to get in SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. It's really hard, but you can do it, but you have to do extra work. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get something called Taft Hartley, which is almost impossible. Like, you know, the last person to get Taft Hartley was probably Marilyn Monroe. They don't have to do it anymore, but I thought I would be the next one to get Taft. You know, what I mainly want to say is that it's not my parents' fault. If anything, the life they gave me, I think is why I was successful in sobriety later, because I knew what that looked like and I could come back to it. And it blows my mind when people without our background get clean. I'm like, how did you even know what life was supposed to look like if your parents were smoking meth with you in the house when you were five? How do you like that really amazes me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I have two comments on this. One is that I think cocaine is the gateway drug. I think cocaine is the drug that my bottom was with heroin, but cocaine convinced me that this was okay and functional and a good time and glamorous. The the other piece that you talked about, which I think is really, really, really important is you talked about like the best part about you is that you're an addict. And I want to reframe that. The piece of us that you're talking about is our ability to hyper-focus 
what many call like obsessive compulsive, right? right. Hyper focus and then drive as heartbeat, just so singularly focused at, that we just lock on and we just drive at it. Like it's and ignore the noise, ignore the, the hits coming left and right, whatever. It's just this like singular focus. And that singular focus is very helpful if you are focused on something positive and very bad if you are focused on something negative. When we talk about being a drug addict or being an addict, what we're saying is there's a part of us that needs something very badly. And we always need to be deciding what it is. I will always have a thing in me that needs something very badly. And I can either be part of the decision-making process. I can either decide that it's going to be spin class and I'm going to drink these caffeinated, you know, like, you know, whatever. I can either decide that I want to be at the meeting where we decide what we're going to, what we're going to hit, or I can let it do what it's going to do. And then it's going to be whatever it's going to be. And I'm along for the ride. That has always been there since I was a kid. And for many years, it would be locked on to different things. And then eventually the need for relief was so intense that my lock became on this easy relief. What I think people don't understand about when they're watching the kid who becomes the the addict gets addicted, how, you know, they were this amazing student. They were this amazing football player. They were this amazing whatever. What they're missing is that part of what made them so amazingly focused on that thing was the same thing that's making them so amazingly focused on the drugs and alcohol. Wow. Yeah. No, I I love that. I think that's so true because if you noticed how many addicts, I feel like most addicts were, they excelled at something. Like a lot of them were athletes, right? Like my husband, my husband was an amazing soccer player until he got injured and picked up Oxycontin and he was a driven athlete. I debated in high school and I was really, really good. One of the things I try to share when I do speak at like meetings and stuff, we usually have some piece of us like that. Like you said that there's some like real talent there, typically, if it's been nurtured in the right setting, obviously. But you're right, that thing that's driving you to do that, that everybody remembers you as is still driving you now. But I think what you just said is cool too, because that could be like a way to determine whether or not the new obsession is good or bad. Do I have a choice in this obsession? Yeah. And my my part, you're going to be drawn to things. And right, like you're going to be, you're going to be drawn to things and there are going to be things that you maybe would love to obsess on. Like I would, there are things I would love to obsess on that. Like I just, it isn't in me. I I can't direct it in that direction, you know? Right. Um, Yes. But what the mistake I see people making and the one I've made in recovery is to think that it's gone or to think that like you should be super balanced with everything. You're not. It's good for you to try because then you'll land somewhere, you know, in the in a in a good range. But rest assured that if you are not paying attention to that drive for relief and for satisfaction, whatever, you can either be a passenger on the train or you can you can be in the driver's seat. I've been both, and it, it's just part of who I am. That's interesting. I really like that. I think that that's true. I think that's true. And it, I mean, that's how I ended up owning that studio. I was obsessed with that studio. I'm still obsessed. I'm obsessed with numbers, right? The numbers. Like, you know, I, I have class later today and I'm like, I wonder how many people are signed up. I'm obsessed with it. And my podcast numbers now too, right? And in fact, another friend of mine hosts a podcast that's super, like probably the popular addiction recovery podcast, the big one. And he is obsessed with his numbers too, which was kind of cool to hear because I assumed it was just me. And then he was like, oh no, I check 
every day. I'm obsessed. And I was like, okay, cool. So we're all out here in this together. If you don't nurture it and recognize it, that yeah, it could take over in some other direction. And I can't either. Like I eat horribly. That's one of the reasons why I work out so much. Most people in fitness like eat really well. I don't. I don't at all. I really? Eat all. No, I eat cheeseburger. This is where my addiction is still like alive and well. Yeah. Chocolate every single night, burgers. So like there's my addiction coming. That's not super healthy. You know, there's so much to the process. And and I, I think that's part of why, you know, when I hear people talk about just like detoxing and then going back to their life and not doing any recovery or any program or anything, I don't care what it is, any type of recovery, I feel really scared for them because this is so much more than putting down the drugs and alcohol. I don't know what you did therapeutically. I did I did therapy like later, probably should have done it sooner, you know, because that that's certainly a part of it is that. And you know, what was interesting is that like, I always think until I started doing my show, I always thought like I didn't have any trauma. Nobody ever hurt me. You know what I mean? I never got, I got in two fights with girls. Nobody, you know, I never got assaulted. I don't have any trauma. And then I've learned from interviewing experts, there's all sorts of trauma to be found. You know, the divorce was traumatic and I never wanted to say that because I love my parents and they were doing the best they could. But I, I, I interviewed somebody once, Britt Frank, She's the author of the book, The Science of Stuck. She's great. And she said, trauma is just anything that's too much, too fast, too soon. And that can be traumatic to someone in in any setting, you know? And like that change for me was too much, too fast, too soon. There is more trauma than I realized, even if it wasn't outwardly like something that we would think because that word has become loaded over time. And I actually did this, I did this interesting, it was like the holistic healing thing recently where they do like Reiki over you. And then she does like energy work. Out here in California, there's like a lot of, you know, that kind of thing. And to some extent, I believe in it. And I was wanting to try it. I was selling my studio and it was hard. And as she was going through my body, and I have all, you know, eight years, she was asking me to feel parts of my body and talk about like what was going on there. And it was so interesting because it was all still related to my addiction. Like I would feel my feet hurt. And she was like, okay, why? And I was like, from walking to the bus. And I was like, that's weird. Why do I still care about that? That was so long ago. And then something else would come up. I don't want to trigger anybody here, but you know, if you shoot meth, there's like a physical response sometimes. It was weird. It was like coming out of my body eight years later. And I realized after that incident that there was still was, there was like a lot of trauma that gets left there. You know, I mean, you're right. It doesn't just go away when we put down the drugs and alcohol. And if you are using for an extended period of time in an extreme way, whether you had trauma or mental health struggles before, you best believe you picked it up. Yes. And, yeah, and exactly. You know, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're, it's just that. And and I think that's actually part of the struggle is that you that you go out into this world, particularly if you're female and you start to use and you're going to just accumulate trauma left and right. And and I, I'm not even, ta- you know, I'm I'm including sexual assault but it not necessarily like there's a lot of other traumatic stuff that goes on when you're doing that for any extended period of time. When I see people who've been using for 10 years, they've been out. That's one of the things I'm thinking about, not about their childhood, about how much trauma they've accumulated while they've been out there. And every day that they're out there, every you know moment that they're in a homeless camp or they're whatever they're doing, they're accruing trauma. That's and you, so have to, true. you have to break through that layer, like the original trauma, you're not even going to get to like we got to break through this huge layer. And that's, that is the, the value of getting out of it as soon as possible, more so than your childhood stuff. That's true. All of those experiences are like the, when he let the guy in that night. 
Jesus. Nothing happened. Yeah. But the fear, I mean, I was so loaded. I didn't notice at the time, but I'm sure me was, I was really, obviously, because I remember it very clear. I remember what he looked like. He had tattoos on his eyelids, which really freaked me out. And I was like, ugh. You know, you and you're in I a was, shed with him that's I was in a shed padlocked from the yeah. outside. Yeah. 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 No, like, like nothing happened in that moment, but even just like that moment happening is traumatic, yeah. you know? Oh, so what do you think is the best way out of that in early recovery? So I think you first have to get the drugs and alcohol out and give your brain some time to heal. Your brain doesn't start to heal. Really, your brain doesn't start to come back online until like 60 days after clean time. And then your impulse control, the impulse control part of your brain starts to come back online. That doesn't mean it's online. It means it starts to come back online. The first year you have a ton of brain healing to do that is necessary in order for you to start thinking through all these things and staying close to other people who are recovering. I mean, it's really the stuff we talk about. Once you have some stability, you feel some stability, you have some community, there are a lot of therapies, depending on what you've been through, that are highly effective. For me, I had some trauma in sobriety and I used EMDR on a very, an event. EMDR on an event for me. I, I've done EMDR on childhood stuff. It was, it was medium. I think you just have to do it for a really long time and consistency is not my bag. And so, so. I, but on an event, it was extremely effective. And then I've, I've done some other modalities working through, for me, very disconnected from my body. So like doing a lot of things that connect me to how I'm feeling sounds very trite, but like yoga. No, and like somatic therapy. Somatic you know. therapy, yeah, totally. yoga, like all these different things. So yeah. starting to learn how to say no, starting to like all these things happen for me in recovery, but I had to be in the middle of a group of recovering people so that they could help me figure this out. And then I added in the professional services as we were going, as things got more complicated. If people want to find you, they want to go get sweaty with you. They want to find your podcast. Where can they find you, Janine? They can find me at Chasing Heroin across all platforms. And it's heroin with an E. So obviously there's the play on the word Chasing Heroin because I feel like Chasing Heroin brought me to my inner highest self, if you will. So Chasing Heroin on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. That's the name of my podcast as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for being here. This was so much fun. I really, really enjoy talking to you. Me too. In fact, I'd actually like, I'd like to have you as a, you guest on other people's shows too, right? Okay. I would love to get you on my show if you're interested. Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Awesome. And yes, thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you. That's awesome. So yesterday you used my pity party trick. I did do the pity party trick. We'll get to, I swear we will get to Janine in just a second, but I think that I appreciate, I'm glad you asked about that because I think it's a really cool trick and not one that people had recommended for me before. So I was having a rough week. I had just dumb stuff. I had kid stuff going on and health stuff going on and mental health is just not great. And, uh, you know, it was obvious to me, it may be probably to you, you know me pretty well at this point, but I was having a really rough day. We were trying to do some recording and I was like, man, I just can't, I can't get out of this. And you're like, we'll do a pity party. She's a, you were like, I tell this to, to my sponsees sometimes, but just like pick an amount of time and then decide that you're going to let it in for that amount of time and then you're going to be done. And I picked the evening. So I just like 
kind of from that moment, I kind of threw out all the plans for the evening. And I was like, I had been thinking about what I was going to fix for dinner and all this stuff. And I was like, nope, we're getting cheeseburgers and we're going to plop down in front of the TV and we're going to watch a show. And I'm not even going to watch the show. I'm going to play on my phone while I eat my cheeseburger. And then I'm going to like lay down on the ground for a little bit and feel sorry for myself, even though I have no right to. And that's the part that I think I am prone to fight a lot is just like, oh, people have it worse. Your problems are nothing compared to other people. You of all people should know all the things that could be happening in your life. And uh, so I won't let it in oftentimes, but it was a really, really helpful tool. Sometimes I would do the thing where I would just eat a bunch of crap and do nothing in the day, but I still wouldn't let it in. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let myself feel sorry in that moment or feel like it was hard. Sometimes I think that's a benefit, but I think to your point and what you're very nicely and gently pointing out is that by just refusing to let it in at all, it was causing me way more distress than just saying, okay, the evening, we're going to let it in and still know all the things intellectually, like people have a much worse, but yeah, no, I appreciate it. It was a great tool. You ever use the pity party or you just, oh. did, you just offer it up? Just offer. No, I use it. So I, the pity part, so for people listening, the pity party is you basically pick a period of time, like, like uh, Scott said, and it can be a day, it can be an hour, it can be in the evening as you did. And you just lean into feeling sorry for yourself or whatever the pity, like the self-pity thing is. And you pick a time when it's going to end. It's going to end at whatever time you set an alarm, whatever. And when it's done, it's done. You are done with your pity party. But when you're having it, throw a <laughs> fucking rager. And, and, and the thing, okay, so here's, here's how I came to this. Here's how I came to this. I don't even remember. Someone probably told me. The pity party is this. And it's for people like us who basically, like if you feel sorry for yourself all the time, you're probably not in the group. <laughs> you're probably not in this like group of people where this is extraordinarily helpful. But if you're like us, where we constantly are like, yeah, but you have it so good. You don't even know real problems. You don't even, you have all this privilege and you have like all the things our brain is literally telling us that our pain is so unacceptable. And how, frankly, our, how dare we even feel pain? Like, Fucking loser, Ashley. Pull at your sh <laughs> how how can you even feel pain? Like, how do you even do that? You're disgusting. The pity party thing, I was like, it really came up around my addiction where I was feeling extremely sorry for myself about like all the behavioral changes I needed to make and all the like, well, I have to give up smoking. I have to give up sleeping around. I have to give up drugs and alcohol. I have to give up, you know, sugar and flour and blah and joy and dairy and blah and whatever. <laughs> and like, I was just like, oh my God, this is out of control. And I feel extremely sorry for myself. <laughs> and sitting in that like, yeah, it does suck that you have, you know, addiction and that is hard. And you did go through some hard shit and you know what? Feel sorry for yourself. Like, but if it had a beginning, a middle and an end, then it didn't get out of control. And I let the feelings out. What I thought I was doing by shaming the feelings away, <laughs> <laughs> literally like shaming. Well, I, the feelings. I, had a, I had a stick. I had a big stick that I was yeah, just yeah, whacking just them like, with. Fuck, fuck, <laughs> yeah. What I thought I was doing but by telling myself that I was not allowed to feel bad, you know, not allowed to feel sorry for myself because my life was good. What I thought I was doing was was getting rid of the feelings. But 
what I was really doing was just masking them and leaving them there to fester. And what I love about the pity party is I just let that, I let it go. Jam out with your clam out, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> but you're just partying it up. <laughs> Jam out with your clam out. <laughs> I've never heard that one. It's really one of my favorites. <laughs> just letting that. <laughs> Let your pity party rage. Wow. All of the images that all of us are experiencing right now, I want to apologize. (laughs) It's okay to feel sorry for yourself for hearing this. You let them all out and then strangely they leave and it's much, much easier to move on from there. But you got to pick a, You got to pick a time, man. You got to pick a time. So just to have your party and then move on from your party. And every now and again, you're going to need to have a little party. It's just the way it goes. I love it. I love it. I'm really glad it worked for you. (laughs) It did. It was really helpful. Actually, it's really helpful. So that is a really good tactic. But I do... I'm kind of into this super pre-workout situation that Janine is talking about. To be honest, I have and jumped on that train and I was like, I want her energy. Well, when energy drinks first came out, the sober, like the 12-step sober community, it was, it was, <laughs> I'm not saying that people shotgunned <laughs> energy drinks, but I'm not saying they didn't, okay? In a group setting. I don't know. There was like a lemonade one that I was okay with, but they had the drink called Redline, which is no longer on the market. <laughs> I think it was causing heart attacks or some shit. It was some serious... But anyway, people would use it in... I'm sure they did generally, but like I only saw it in the sober community. If people use it in the sober community <laughs> before workouts, this like red line drink and they would be hyped up. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like pr- when you say pre-workout, I think like in order to get a colonoscopy, you got to drink the shit, right? Like it's a pre, it's an important element. The way my brain works is is truly, I, don't, I can't explain it, but that's colonoscopy is where it went. So it's like, okay, I'm trying to stay on the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't yeah, know where stay, we're going. Stay on the train. Look, we're the in a train, dark forest. We're in a we're dark, in the dark forest. forest. We There's went no, through a the tiny tube. The moonlight is gone. The moonlight's yeah. gone. Mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm, see anything. Mm-hmm. The bridge is rickety. Here we are. (laughs) You're on my train. So long and short is that basically you're just getting really caffeinated to work out. And is that, are we really calling, is that like a pre-workout or is that just like heavy caffeine to do an activity, right? Well, if you work out afterwards, then it's a pre-workout, Ashley. Well, and if you do anything anything before a workout, it's a pre-workout. Anything, literally. I love, you know, a sleeve of Oreos, pre-workout. Exactly. So what are we, what are we really talking about? (laughs) What are we talking about? What do I consider? I consider everything I ate the day before the workout pre-workout as well. Everything that happened before this workout (laughs) is pre-workout. So what what are we really talking about here? A pre-workout is like part of the whole process, right? Like you cannot have a colonoscopy. I'm sorry, I have to just be (laughs) back on colonoscopy colonoscopy without drinking the drink. You got to clean it out. Okay. That's a pre colonoscopy. This does not no, hold up. I- <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. Because if you took that drink any other time, it doesn't, it, you have to take it with the colonoscopy. But what we're talking about is like a <laughs> cup of really strong coffee. <laughs> I have no idea. God damn it, guys. <laughs> no, it's real. I, I This interview, I, I like the times where, you know, when you're like watching... Who watches tennis? People watch tennis, right? But if you're watching that and it's like a very even matchup where you're just you're taking even turns, there's long rallies happening where it's, you know, body ba 
You you all both absolutely you all both, relate. You all, you all both. I'm I, I can't stop <laughs> relating. I feel like I'm over relating. Oh my god! When I watch tennis and there's an you know even match. How excited matchup. you get? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All you, I, all you yeah. tennis heads out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You re- like hard. That's really my audience. If you if you think about it, it's just like hardcore tennis racket people. I'm literally trying to describe a conversation where it was very even in. Both you bringing energy. Oh, you're and, relating this to the conversation. Yeah. Wow. And I didn't even know where we were and going. Colonoscopies. Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. It's real. It's real rough in here right now. It's it's okay. hard. Okay, I'll get what real I'm concrete. Saying, what I'm saying is, what you he's both saying? had a lot of similar shared experience, so the energy for the conversation could build with each of you on either side because you had this shared experience and you could be like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this. Oh yeah, that reminds me of this. Oh yeah, this reminds me of this. Nobody had to take the wheel. Nobody, it was just a real nice match for a tennis head like me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. I don't even like tennis. I don't know why this became my personality. I I don't don't, like colonoscopies. I don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I've never had one, but I'm ready. What was your favorite part of the interview? I mean, I was there on the edge of my seat when she was getting the studio job 19 days into kicking heroin. I was like, I don't even know all the things. And I know that that's a bad idea. I would not recommend such a thing in front of people. Like you're not even... even I know. Doing this in a private place, when it all goes awry, you can have your horrible private moment. But you are literally leading a class of people doing that. A spin class. Not just like a... Like on a spin class, you're also spinning. Yeah, you are. You are. And yelling, you know... yelling encouragements and and sweating and like it's not a good look to begin with and what's funny what i do what what is funny what went through my mind was how many times i've been in spin class and i've looked at the instructor who's like in really good shape and they're really excited and go 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 and i'm like fuck this and i'm turning the resistance down and i and i look at them and i'm thinking like they eat perfectly they you know like i'm making up a whole story about how perfect their life is and how if i whatever i could look like that and i should have blah 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 and whatever i was picturing being in that class and thinking all those things meanwhile (laughs) she's 19 (laughs) days you know living in a like she literally was just living in a dog house and i'm you know i bet every woman in there was like man i wish i had her arms or (laughs) whatever you know she's so thin look at how trim she is yeah yeah she probably eats so clean (laughs) what a wimp i am (laughs) oh man well no i i love janine's story i think you should check out her podcast chasing heroin clever name heroin like the female protagonist of a story check it out well we're rooting for you this week we hope that if you need a pity party you throw yourself a pity party i i wish that for you it was very helpful for me i would recommend it if you don't know who to reach out to if you are stumped please do reach out to us at podcast at linerock.life we want to hear from you the good the bad the ugly we are interested in your story and interested in your success ashley anything you want to leave the people with today yes i want to leave you with a statement which is the pain is in the resistance my friends keep that in the back of your mind as your mantra today the pain is in the resistance you got this. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. 
LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.